0: Back in September, I started a series of sermons that focused on the Bible as the true story of the whole world, and it's authoritative for all of life today. That's been the theme of this series. The Bible is the true story of the whole world, and it's authoritative for all of life today. I've been saying that this is a basic belief of Christianity. The authority of the Bible is an essential component of the Christian faith. Without this component, without this belief, not just the belief, but the practice, without this, we don't have Christianity. We may have the sound and the fury. We might have the liturgy. We might have the traditions. We might have the name. But we don't have Christianity. We have a shell game. Without the authority of scripture, Christianity has been transformed into a new religion. But here's what I want to do today and next Sunday and Wednesday night in our downtown talks. I want to admit that naming the authority of scripture is not enough because even if you name it even if you believe in the authority of scripture you still have to interpret scripture in fact the bible itself contains numerous examples of the bible itself being overread or underread and at times misread owning the authority of Scripture as a belief isn't all there is to the authority of Scripture because Scripture has to be interpreted. And history is filled with cautionary tales of those who mistake a human voice for the voice of God. You know, in some circles, the Bible says trumps everything. But what do you do when you're in that circle and the Bible says is wrong? What you're saying it says is wrong. Look at it this way. There are three primary groupings of Christians in the world today. Protestants, Catholics, and the Orthodox. The Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. These are the three major groupings of Christianity today. Within Orthodoxy, like I said, there's various subsects. Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian, Antioch. Arminian, Martoma, Coptic. Within Protestantism, we're right here in our own town. Think of all the flavors we've got. Presbyterians, Mennonites, Baptists, Anglicans, Lutherans. This goes on and on. To say that Christianity is diverse can be quite a significant understatement. So an obvious question we need to face is how can Christians... Have any confidence in the truth when Christians can't even agree on what is true. I mean, the vast majority of these denominations claim to follow the Bible as the authority. As the source of divine revelation. A sacred deposit of truth. And yet, pick numerous passages of scripture and they're going to disagree with one another. So like I said, if it's up to interpretation, and if so many of us disagree, how then can we have any confidence? So in this morning's sermon, next week and then on the Down to Talks Wednesday night, we're going to walk into this issue. If the Bible's authoritative and the Bible has to be interpreted, how do those things work out? If you have a Bible, please find our reading for this morning. Galatians chapter 1. If you need to use the table of contents, go for it. If you need to use Google, I will judge you. But Ernie and the rest of you can go for it. Oh, you actually brought a Bible, Ernie. I figured if I mocked you enough. It's taken Ernie five years of mocking. Some of you are new among us. I'll keep on you for the next five. You'll come around. Galatians chapter 1. Our scripture reading this morning from the New Testament. Look at verse 6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So this was written a mere 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And already, Paul says in verse 6, so quickly people are debating interpretations. Already they're debating What's true and what's not true. And if you're a Christian, the stakes are even higher than just debating. Look what it says in verse 8: Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In Greek, anathema. Wow. If you get it wrong, you're cut off from God. Holy cow. If they were debating that close to the origins of this whole thing, how in the world can we have any confidence at a distance of 2,000 years and countless cultural iterations? Now, in our culture, whether you're liberal, progressive, or evangelical, conservative, people tend to answer this question in the same way. Liberalism and evangelicalism are flip sides of the same enlightenment coin. And the way liberals and the way conservatives answer the question of how can we know if it's true or not is fundamentally the same in our culture. Let me explain. Those of us in this room, the progressive of... Progressives among us, the traditionalist among us. We are children, we are great grandchildren, at the least stepchildren, of the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment gives us a presupposition, a prejudice against prejudice. The chief prejudice of the Enlightenment is the prejudice against prejudice. It's the idea. That the way you come at truth is not through any tradition, but through reason. The idea that the way you know something with confidence is true is that you cast off all subjectivity. And in science, we call this the scientific method, which is appropriate to science. You become as objective as possible so that you can see it clearly. For what it is. Now, here's how this played out. In the first half of the 17th century, the French philosopher Rene Descartes developed this solution to disagreements about truth. See, Rene Descartes. A hundred years after the Protestant Reformation, a hundred years after Luther comes through the university system, and and his teachers are all disagreeing with each other, and he says, wait a minute, if it's supposed to be university, a unified, a universal understanding, how come my teachers disagree, they disagree with the church, how can I know if anything's really true or not when all of the authorities are debating? That didn't happen before the Reformation. Before the Reformation, there was one authority, the church. After the church broke down, there were all of these different views. That's a bit of a hyperbole. There was differences within the church. But on a meta level, this stands. So Rene Descartes, sitting in front of his fireplace one day, comes upon this solution. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. And what he said was, the path to having confidence is to strip away everything you can doubt and start from there and build up through reason. Now, whether you know this little trip through philosophical history or not, you were raised in this environment. Human reason is a supreme authority in matters of knowledge. Rid yourself of any preconceived ideas, And like a scientist, be objective, use rigorous, clear logic. But to be honest, it's only been since Descartes gave the West that idea. It's only been since then that we've had the proliferation of denominations. Now, we don't have time to go into all of it this morning. I've talked a lot about this in the past, but it is a matter of historical record that this whole way of approaching truth leads to different interpretations. Descartes thought it solved it, but it didn't. It exacerbated it. And ultimately, it leads to what is going on in the church today. As we debate issues, Like gay marriage, gender roles, pacifism and war. Whatever the kind of battlefront of our debates is. Now, the Bible offers a completely different route to landing at confidence and truth. Galatians chapter 1. It's right there. It's most explicit in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. How can we have confidence in the truth? How can we tell the difference between genuine Christianity and opinion? The answer is packed into that one little verb that Paul uses in verse 9, receive. As we have said before, so now I'll say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Paul doesn't say, now think about this. He says, remember. Two different paths to knowledge. Now, when Paul says, what you have received, he's not talking about scripture. He's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about something bigger. When he says to them, judge the debates against that which you received, he's not saying read the Bible. He's talking about something bigger than the Bible. It includes the Bible. He's talking about tradition. Don't you just want to break out into a tradition? Right. He's talking about the tradition of the church. We call it the apostolic tradition. The whole of Christian faith and practice handed down within the church from Christ through the apostles to the present day. It's not something over against scripture. It includes scripture. Scripture exists Within tradition. Now the Bible recognizes a negative form of the word tradition. Jesus said, hey, you guys are following the traditions of men instead of scripture. But most of the time when the Bible mentions tradition, it's positive. Why is it that most of the time when Protestants use the word tradition, it's negative? Because we're children of Descartes. Because the chief prejudice of the enlightenment is against tradition, against prejudice, against having a preconceived authoritative view of something. Now, find another passage in the Bible. It's a few pages to the right. Second Thessalonians. It's a little bitty. It's kind of difficult to find. If you get to Hebrews, turn left, come back. It's a a few pages before that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the... What does your Bible say, anybody? Some say teachings, especially if you're reading the NIV, which is a great translation. But on this level, the, tr- the NIV was prejudiced by Protestants. It's, it's a documented fact. In fact, most NIV translations now have a tiny footnote. And it says technically or literally the word here is traditions. The reason the NIV translate that word every time as teachings, except for when Jesus uses it to critique tradition, only then does the NIV actually use the word tradition, is because a group of Protestants over, they they didn't recognize their own prejudice. Now, I love the NIV. It's a great translation. But on this word and the word sarks, flesh, it's a matter of historical record that we've, we've recognized some ways to calibrate It doesn't mean you can't be confident in it. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions is the word that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, some... Translations of the Bible hold firm to the teachings. But here's the deal. What I want you to see is that the essential content of the Christian faith was delivered in two ways. How? By word of mouth, orally, and by being written down. The same is true today. The same is true today. This comes up again in the letter to the Corinthians. If you can hold your finger there in 2 Corinthians and go left a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I command you because you remember me in everything. In main, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 2. Now I command you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions. That's the word. Even as I deliver them to you. And he, how did he deliver them? In two ways. In writing and through this oral body of knowledge. That oral body of knowledge is just what you mean by tradition. Now he's not saying every little bitty group's tradition He's using tradition in a capital T way. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now go back to Second Thessalonians. Chapter 3 this time. Look at verse 6. Now, we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you... Actually, it's a form of the word again, tradition from us, that you received from us. Now, I want to make two key points here. First, in the Bible itself, in the churches of the New Testament, when they are debating truth what mattered above all else in debates the thing that mattered the most was this are they consistent with the tradition of the apostles with that way of reading the Bible that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us that the apostles then passed on to us and second this tradition was both written and oral It was written, that's what we call the Bible, and there was a part of it that wasn't written. And that's what we call the church tradition, big T. I know this opens up some other questions, but I'm just trying to get that fact on the board. We're going to come back and talk about how there's differences between the tradition and little t traditions. But just let me make this point before we start finding the exceptions. Now, this way of debating is in the New Testament. When people are debating, it's in the New Testament that it's not Bible alone. If by Bible alone you mean you only interpret it through your reason. It's Bible alone if you mean Bible as a set of this larger work of the Spirit. Now, that's the way it is happening in the pages of the New Testament. We can go forward in history, and I'll just give you one quote in case you hated history and it bores you. But if we jump forward to the second century, this is somewhere between 130 and 200 A.D. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, he was dealing with some people who were debating some things about the Bible with the traditional church. Some pastors, some whole movements, and here's what he said. Here's a direct quote. These men do not consent either to scripture nor to the tradition. And you find this going on in the second and third and fourth and fifth centuries. It's all over the church's debates. Not only are they saying, what does the Bible say? They're saying, how does the tradition also say it? Because in the debates, everybody was, applying, was appealing to the Bible as they are often today. Now that's just one quote of many that I could show you down through the centuries. When the church debates different interpretations of the Bible, the issue at stake in the Bible itself and onwards is not Scripture versus tradition, but the desire to be faithful to the teachings of the apostles that were preserved in both Scripture and tradition. The very first historical account of the church Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Let me put this another way. Throughout this series, I've been saying that the authority of the Bible is an essential component of authentic Christianity. And now I'm adding to that. I'm saying the authority of tradition is an essential component to authentic Christianity. So think about this. Everything I've been saying in the, in the first two sermons at the end of September, that the Bible is the true story of the world and is authoritative for all of life today. There are lots of denominations, there are lots of Christians who agree on that, who are fiercely debating what the Bible means. And that's nothing new. It is possible to affirm that and still have lots of disagreements. That's been going on since the Bible itself, in the pages of the Bible itself. And there's a way of dealing with interpretive differences in the Bible. And it is never an appeal to reason. That's why we heard from first from the book of Proverbs. Just think for, just think about this. Hear these words. If you want to know wisdom and instruction and and understand insight and receive instruction in wise dealing, not figure it out yourselves, but receive it. These are two different postures. How do you do that? Verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. The fundamental, this is a big fancy word, the fundamental epistemology of the Bible. The way the Bible says you learn truth is through the humility of reception, not through the aggression of reason. Now, I'm not saying that reason is bad. I'm just trying to help us see that we are children of Descartes. I've told you this before. Somebody go, some whale says to another whale, how's the ocean? So the little whale swims all over the ocean and he can't find it. And he comes back home and says, I've looked everywhere. Where's this ocean? It doesn't exist. Whoever discovered the ocean, it wasn't the whale. Right? We live in a culture that is so elevated reason. Liberals and traditionalists are doing flip sides of the same coin. Neither of which are being biblical. Now, what I'm trying to say is that the Protestant American, you know, there's only one God in America. We've only built one statue of a God. It's Libertas. You have to pass under its shadow to join our country. The Statue of Liberty is the Roman goddess Libertas. And she's conned all of us into believing. This is what happens when you worship a God, you adopt its values. She's conned all of us into believing that liberty is freedom from any constraint. And especially this side of the French Revolution, the constraint of religion. And this side of the American Revolution, a constraint from government. Throw off kings and priests. That's the mantra of the Enlightenment. And it has programmed us to think that we don't have any traditions that are affecting us as we read the Bible. But that's just baloney. How come all the Mennonites believe in pacifism and all the Baptists want to bomb the heck out of everybody? If you were raised Baptist, you'd probably be a warmonger too. And if you were raised Mennonite, you'd probably be a pacifist too. Because your tradition is deeply at work. When you read these passages, they just stand out to you. How come the Pentecostals read the Bible and start speaking in tongues and the Presbyterians start judging them? <laughs> For only one reason. The people who were born Presbyterian were born with that prejudice. And so when they read the Bible, they see it reinforcing their prejudice. And the assemblies of God were born with their prejudice. And when they read the Bible, they see it reinforcing their prejudice. Or do, are you really willing to say that, uh, that your tribe is smarter than every other tribe? See, that's what you got to say. If you think reason is the path to truth, then you think the best way to get there is to get the smartest. And then you have to judge all the other traditions as less smart than you. But the Bible says the path is a humble acceptance of this thing that's been in the church from the beginning. Now, what is this tradition I keep talking about? Simply put, it is the faith that has been delivered and believed. Here's three words I'm going to give you. Everywhere, where, where all, always, and by all. What? When I say the big T tradition, I'm talking about a specific thing. Big words. I'm talking about the faith delivered and believed everywhere, always, and by all. This is a phrase the church came up with in the 5th century... Vincent of Leon. Leon is this little place now basically near modern day Cannes. where They have the Cannes Film Festival. He's a little monk. Traveled all around the world. And he said, man, everybody's debating about everything. How do we know what's true? And he came up with this phrase. And the whole church accepted it. These are the three tests of knowing when people disagree which one is true or not. Let me break it open a little bit. By everywhere, it means universal. It means across cultures. It's the interpretation being. If, if there's an interpretation of the Bible being debated, the question is which interpretation is shared generally by the whole community of believers around the world? And which one is only held by a few? Now that's hard for American exceptionalism. By always, this test what's true? Believed everywhere, always, and by all. The word always means antiquity. Is this claim, this, it, this thing we're debating about the Bible, is it new or is it grounded in the ancient, intergenerationally received faith that goes back to the apostles? They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. Not what does the Bible say, but how have those who stood in light of it from the beginning understood it to say something? By all, the thing believed everywhere, always, and by all, it means consent. Has this interpretation been confirmed by a fairly ordered consenting process of clergy and laity? That was the test that the church in the 5th century used to describe the way the church had been dealing with debates. It wasn't invented in the 5th century. It was named in the 5th century. These three tests must all be passed for something to be a truly Christian reading of the Bible. So even if a teaching was widely accepted throughout the church, if it didn't go back to the apostles, it was unfaithful. See, it it can pass one of them and not another one. It's got to pass all three. And if there was a consent... By a certain group of Christians. And it could be tracked back to earlier times. But it wasn't a consent by the comprehensive whole. It's unfaithful. If it's by the comprehensive whole. But it doesn't go back in time. It's unfaithful. If it goes back in time. But it's not by the comprehensive whole. It's unfaithful. This is a highly nuanced calibrated test. A debated interpretation had to pass all of these. This is how the church identified the Trinity. See, here's the deal. You can do anything you want with the Bible. You can make it say anything your tribe wants to make it say. So the church has never said the answer is to become unprejudiced. The church has always said, how can we be prejudiced in the right way? How can we have an, a, an assumption in the right way? How can we have a preconceived idea? See, the question is you can't, it's not about becoming objective, it's about becoming the right subjective. If someone comes along with a reading of the Bible that's an innovation, it cannot be accepted. And if the whole world adopts it, it cannot be accepted. This is exactly the sort of thing Paul is getting at when he says in Galatians 1.9, If anyone has preached to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There is a tradition, a core, and the historical record shows that it has been believed and consented to around the world by Christians throughout time and culture and place. We call this Orthodox faith. A little low Orthodox, not Greek Orthodox Church, but Orthodoxy. The Christian tradition has generally taken the Church's central beliefs to be certain and incorrigible, and while it explicitly denies these beliefs are self evident, here's the deal. If you don't read the Bible through the lens of the tradition, you and I disagree and you're wrong. That's what the church has always said. When Irenaeus was debating with people who debated about if Jesus was God or not, he said, here at the end of the day, you're reading the Bible, I'm reading the Bible. You say he's not, I say he is. You're wrong because I'm reading it with the tradition, not because it's self-evident. It is not self-evident. The Bible cannot be read blindly. If it's read blindly, that really means it's read with your prejudices working in the background and you're not admitting them. There's only one God's eye point of view. Guess who got it? God. Everybody else is bootlegging a tradition in. So the question is not how do you get out of a tradition. It's about how you discern the right tradition so that you can read the Bible Christianly. Nobody needs to read the Bible objectively. We need to read it rightly. Because reading it with objectivity is a thin disguise for bootlegging in the values of your culture. So, what is our defense against the values of the culture? The tradition. The big T tradition. Now, always scripture is more powerful than the tradition. I'm not saying these are equal, they're not. And there are moments in the life of the church where we have to rediscover the way the Bible can actually calibrate our tradition and help us to read it better. The future of the church depends on us recognizing the authority of tradition. It is an essential component of the Bible. And recognizing the authority of tradition is an essential component for reading the Bible right. Scripture and tradition belong together. We must root ourselves in the big T tradition. If we lose the tradition, we lose our identity as Christians. And instead of being authentic Christians, we are merely religiously tinted mirrors of the world around us. We've got to retrieve the tradition. We've got to go back to the tradition, to the clean, to clean and to water it so that this living root, this thing called the tradition can grow and bud and blossom once again in our day. Listen what Peter said in one of his letters, 2 Peter 1.20. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from your own interpretation. That is a direct critique of a nation, a culture that tries to read with reason alone. You see, Scripture must not only be read, it must be understood correctly. Not every disagreement about the Bible is incorrect. There's such a thing as overreading and underreading, but there's also a thing as misreading. The Bible is a wondrous depth. It is a living text. It brings a fresh view in every generation. But just because there's multiple sermons on the same passage, just because the Mennonites are seeing something and the Anglicans are seeing something, it doesn't always mean one is right and one is wrong. But it does mean that when you cross out of the boundary and you get into a misreading. So what is... Actually, this stable, central, core set of of, of way of reading the Bible belief that we can rest secure in. In short, it's the seven ecumenical councils that have been accepted by the church throughout time and throughout the world. Seven meetings early in the life of the church. When from all over the world, from all different cultures... The churches came together and agreed on the essence. And they produced. Oh, these meetings, it was Nicaea in 325. It was Constantinople in 381. And Ephesus in 431. And Chalcedon in 451. And Constantinople again in 553 and 680. And Nicaea in 787. That's just for people who like dates. These meetings, these seven meetings of the church as it was going across the world in different cultures and different ethnic groups and as centuries rolled by and they had competing interpretations and they recognized we've got to nail down an authoritative interpretation. Not that covers every issue but that becomes the lens through which we can adjudicate every issue and they produced the creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. We use them in our church every Sunday. This is the reason we say them every Sunday. Not because they're our pledge of allegiance to Christ, but also because you can't read the Bible nakedly with pure reason. You've got to read it through the church and through the tradition, and that's the lens. Now, those of you who don't know the creeds, but you grew up in some churches... Whether they admitted to creeds or confessions or not, many of our churches are living on the borrowed capital of Orthodox Christianity that went before us. So why do Christians today who don't even know the creed believe that this is the Bible? Because you know what told us this is the Bible tradition? The Bible doesn't identify the books in the Bible. The tradition does. Why, does the, why do Christians today believe in the Trinity? Why can we say to people who disagree about the Trinity, I'm sorry, you're wrong"? Why? Because the tradition said the Trinity's in the Bible. Now, let me kind of bring all this to a close by saying how this kind of works out in our life as a church. First of all, it gives us humility. Confessing the ancient faith gives us a tremendously diverse, inclusive, ecumenical, tolerant perspective. Because it says to be modern is not necessarily to be smart. Because it's so inclusive, so ecumenical, that it recognizes the deep. Inner unity of the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Russian, Syriac, Antiochian, Thoma, Coptic, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian traditions. That there is a consistent core in them. We are so inclusive that we listen to people who are dead. It's modern innovators telling us to be inclusive who are denying the right of the dead forefathers to speak. We're more inclusive than them. The truth we're agreeing to has been agreed upon far wider, by far more people, by far more ethnic groups, by far more cultures, and by far more centuries. So we're saying yes for tolerance. Yes for inclusivity. Let's have maximal inclusivity. Maximal tolerance. Let's allow the dead to have a voice. We recognize the most representative voices that best reflect the consenting mind of the people of God viewed with the maximum range of times and cultures. What the consensual tradition trusts least is individualistic innovation that hasn't learned to humble itself before the great tradition, the worshiping people of God down through the ages. You see how this pushes us to have humility? Enough humility to self-doubt our own moment in time and what appears to be logical to us. So there are parts of the church's orthodox reading of the Bible that don't make sense to me. So I humbly say, yes to millions of Christians and untold thousands of eth- of cultures for multiple centuries, I humbly say, they could see something I don't see. How else do you deal with committed Christians supporting slavery? Do you think the slave holding Christians of 200 years ago are the only people able to be blinded by their own moment in time? How do we rise up against the blindness of our own moment? We yield to the traditional reading of the Bible. This is an act of humility. Secondly, do you see how this pushes us to have confidence? We can have confidence in the ability of the Holy Spirit to protect and to preserve the truth and to lead us into the right remembrance of truth. Remember that thing I read out of John's gospel? The Spirit will come and teach you to remember. You know what the accumulated remembrance of the church is? The tradition. The great tradition is the record of what the Holy Spirit has caused the church to remember throughout time. This gives us confidence. Classic Christianity has survived 20 centuries. The covenant of God with his people is not threatened by our ignorance, our failures, our dysfunctions, our heresy, apostasy, or confusion. Against God's church, the gates of hell will not prevail. God didn't create the community of faith at such a great cost to let it finally fall into irredeemable error. The long-range assured survival of the church is the guarantee of a God who can make the sun rise every single day. The church will be guided by the Holy Spirit and sustained by grace until the end of time. This is a promise that God has been and will continue to be faithful to fulfill. We don't have to worry in the midst of radically disparate interpretations. This gives us humility. It gives us confidence. And finally, it gives us security. The boundaries of faith Give us security. Children raised by parents who lack authority. Whose no actually means keep doing it until I yell. Children raised without boundaries are profoundly insecure. Children raised in loving boundaries where no means no long before yelling ever starts. Where a whispered no is the same as a yelled no. And the yelled no ever, never even has to happen because you don't get there. Those children are adjusted and secure. We know the boundaries. That doesn't mean we know the answer to every given subject. Three weeks ago in the second sermon of the series, I talked about how we've got to have innovation. We've got to have um, improvisation. How there's lots of issues we're facing today that aren't mentioned in the Bible. We've got to hold that sermon with this one. We have the security of the correcting work of the spirit over a range of time and cultures. The orthodox faith marks the boundaries that have been established for centuries. They give us the freedom that we all long for. The orthodox faith delivers us from obsessive spiritual fadism. I love the way Vincent of Lorraine puts this way back in the 5th century he wrote the true and genuine Christian is the one who loves the truth of God who loves the church who loves the body of Christ who esteems the received Christian faith above everything above the authority above the regard above the genius above the eloquence above the philosophy above every man whatsoever who sets light by all these and continuing steadfast and established in the faith resolves that he will believe only that which he is sure the church has held universally and rejects all other beliefs listen there are cultures and there are centuries where everything i've said would be heard with a yawn because it's assumed but it's hard for protestant americans the reason you've critiqued tradition more than you've elevated it is because of when you were born. Throughout the Bible, we're reminded of this stubborn fact that a single cohesive deposit of faith formed and shaped by the Spirit and confirmed by generations of Christians has persisted for, um, for millennia. It's been translated into countless languages. The spirit of God has an enabled, a consistent way of interpreting Scripture to remain through all the changes of history. In this Orthodox faith, we find common ground with Orthodox Christians in every denomination. It's the reason this church is filled with Anglicans and Presbyterians and Mennonite and Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and non-denominational types and even Macy. Who's been many of those. It's a reason Macy can be many of those. Because there's a deep Christianity. That crosses the lines of all these denominations. We confess together. That the creeds help us read the Bible right. And when our traditions lead us astray. The, scripture, the Bible is powerful enough to come back on us. And to correct us. Historic Christianity is based on enduring biblical foundations and it's expressed in the definitive creeds. We must retain them, reclaim them, and reaffirm them. Let's pray.